Kumana into center field. It's going to drop for a base hit. Scoring is Martinez. Quick is getting the wave around. Walk it off. Little big man. One one on the way. Oh. Well, that one is heading to Mansfield as it is Lumberjacks. Jesus Pozo clubs his third dinger of the year. Pujols with a drive deep to left. Richard looking up, and that is gone. Jose Pujols with his first home home run of the year. McCall's around first to throw to second. Tobias' tag in time to end the ball game. Swung on in the air, shallow right. Pujols in and over into foul ground, makes the catch to end the ball game, and the cutter storm the field as Pinkney Division champions. Welcome back, everybody, to the Timber Talk Podcast. I am Mitch Rupert of the Williamsport Sun Gazette. What an interesting week in Williamsport Crosscutters baseball this has been. We've got a wide array of things to discuss with the short-season Class A affiliate of the Philadelphia Phillies. It's been a tough week in terms of wins and losses for the Crosscutters, but despite a 3-5 and five record over the last eight games as we, re- we record this, the Cutters still maintain a one-and-a-half game lead in the New York Penn League's wildcard race over the Hudson Valley Renegades. But over that span, the Crosscutters' deficit in the Pinckney Division has grown from just one game to five after Thursday night's loss to Staten Island. On the bright side for Williamsport, third baseman Luke Williams has returned from an injury which robbed him of three weeks of the season, and he seems to have hit the ground running in his return for the Crosscutters. But that's something we'll get into a little later on here on the Timber Talk podcast. We're also going to be joined later by Jeff Paternostro of Baseball Prospectus, who recently took in a three-game series at Bowman Field and has some thoughts to share on the likes of Luis Encarnacion, Archimedes Gamboa, Juan Luis, Henry Lartigue, and Bailey Falter. Also later on in the episode, we're going to talk about Chandler Hall and his new role with the Crosscutters as their everyday shortstop since Archimedes Gamboa went down with an injury earlier this week. We'll introduce you to the undrafted free agent out of Louisiana Tech, and I'll share with you part of my interview with him and how he's viewing this as an opportunity to turn some heads. But before we get into all that, let's take a look at the roster moves made this week by the Williamsport Crosscutters. There was really only one move made, and that was outfielder Mark Laird being promoted to the Lakewood Blue Claws. The 2009 ninth-round draft pick out of LSU has been an integral part of the Crosscutters' surge over the last month, which has seen the team win 17 of its last 24 games to put it right in the thick of the New York Penn League playoff race. In 19 games with the Crosscutters, Laird hit 358 with a 794 OPS, and over the last week or so, it's become very clear that Laird had bypassed this league and needed to be challenged further. But while he was around, Cutters manager Pat Borders was happy to have him here. As we talked about last week with Cutters broadcaster Ian Catherine, Laird had an influence over some of the younger players in this lineup. He knew how to approach at bats. He knew how to hit in each situation, and that was a great learning tool for the younger guys on the roster to watch and try to emulate. Laird's promotion coincided with a number of moves within the Phillies organization this week. Former cutters Zach Coppola and Jeff Singer were both promoted from Lakewood to Clearwater on Thursday, and former cutters Mitch Walding and Jason Terrian were both sent from Clearwater to Reading. And Roman Quinn was activated off the disabled list by Reading on Thursday and put back 
into the leadoff spot in the Fight and Fills lineup. So just think about that for a moment, what that Reading lineup is going to look like with Roman Quinn leading off, Scott Kingery, believed to be the top second base prospect in the system, in the two-hole, catcher Jorge Alfaro batting third, Dylan Cousins and his 30-plus home runs hitting fourth, Reese Hoskins and his 30-plus home runs hitting fifth, veteran Jake Fox with his 20 homers hitting sixth, Andrew Pullen and his 370 batting average hitting seventh, and Mitch Walding hitting eighth, who was hitting 280 with double-digit home runs in Clearwater. Then you add on the combination of Angelo Mora and KC Cerna hitting in the nine hole. Yeah, ain't that something. The most significant news over the last week for the Williamsport Crosscutters has been the return of third baseman Luke Williams, who is now back to being an everyday player after manager Pat Borders eased him back into the lineup last weekend against State College and Mahoning Valley. Williams is returning from an undisclosed injury, which he would only describe as a muscle strain of some kind. Looking at the numbers with Luke Williams, his return may not seem like that big a deal, but this has the chance to be a significant return for the team in the middle of a playoff race. As we record this, Williamsport, as we said, is only five games behind State College in the Pinckney Division, and it leads Hudson Valley by one and a half games in the wildcard race. So why is Luke Williams' return so significant? Well, first and foremost, he's a former third-round draft pick of the Philadelphia Phillies, who I've said before has received nothing but rave reviews from the organization's roving minor league instructors and from the director of player development, Joe Jordan himself. If you're scouting just the stat line with Luke Williams, it's going to give you a false representation of just who the 19-year-old third baseman is. This is something I've talked about previously because the numbers just don't say who he really is as a player. This was something I talked to him about earlier this week, and I'd like to play a portion of that interview with Luke Williams because I think it's important to hear that he's not discouraged by what his own numbers say, and he understands what he's doing at the plate right now is good enough for both he and the coaching staff. And when he returned last week, he got right back to those ways of barreling up the baseball consistently and being one of the more consistent producers in the Williamsport Crosscutters lineup. I thought it was great. You jumped back in. It looked like you didn't miss a beat. I mean, barrel a couple balls up in State College. Did you feel like you you were back to the point you were before before the hurt? Yeah, I, de- I definitely did. I was just a uh, big thing for me. I was just trying to stay relaxed, just trying to stay relaxed and think up the middle, right center. And uh, I think that helped. I think that's one thing that I really got to focus on throughout the season is just trying to relax and just Make, let, let it happen. Your first, I think your first at bat back, you get a single over to left center field. Did that maybe help kind of settle you down a little bit? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was definitely nice. To, it was actually a double right center. Okay, yeah. But yeah, it was, it, that definitely felt really good. Barrel up, barrel up a ball, first at bat, and uh, it, it felt really good, yeah. You've barreled the ball so much this year when you're playing, and it feels like you don't have a lot to show for it. Is that how you feel? That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, Everyone looks at stats. Stats don't matter to me. I mean, I have a mental average in my head that I think I'm hitting, and I hope and I think that's what the coaches see. So, uh, I mean, I'm happy with how I'm performing this year so far. So I'm just just hoping I keep keep that uh, keep that going the rest of the season. So why aren't Williams' numbers where they were a year ago? Simply put, he's hitting into a lot of tough luck. He's got a 275 batting average on balls in play, which might not necessarily suggest that kind of tough luck, but nobody on this Williamsport team, with maybe the exception of Mark Laird while he was here, barrels the ball better or more consistently than Luke Williams. 
But also, his walk rate is way down from where it was a year ago. One of the things which opened up the eyes of the fans to Williams a year ago was his nearly equal walk and strikeout rates, especially for a kid who was just about two months removed from playing high school baseball. But this year, while his strikeout rate has risen from 16.5% to 22%, his walk rate has fallen from 15.1% to just 7% this year. In turn, his on-base percentage has fallen more than 100 points from 391 a year ago to just 280 this year with Williamsport. I look at these numbers, and it is alarming to an extent. But I believe Luke Williams is far from a finished product. If he were a finished product, he wouldn't be here in Williamsport. But this is a kid who isn't your prototypical third baseman. He doesn't hit for a ton of power right now. He runs exceptionally well. Wednesday night was a great example where he hit two balls very solidly the other way to the right center field gap. But at this point of his development, there isn't quite enough strength in his swing to drive the ball on the fly up the alley. And both of those hits fell into the glove of Staten Island's right fielder. But what I like from Luke Williams is that he is hitting the ball the other way. He's consciously trying to work to right center field. He's not going that way because he doesn't have the bat speed to pull a good fastball. He's going the other way because he's looking to work that way. So this is a kid who has a good understanding of his swing and of his strengths. It's going to take some time for Williams to fill out and live up to his position as a third-round draft pick, but it's far from time to be concerned about Luke Williams because while the numbers may not say it, this kid can really play. I'm always glad to see when other writers are in attendance at Williamsport Crosscutters games just to hear their takes on the players that I'm seeing on a daily basis. It's good to hear differing opinions and seeing if there's anything I miss out there on the field that they see differently. One of those writers is Jeff Paternostro, a contributor for Baseball Prospectus, who recently took in a Crosscutters series and has written about a few of the team's players. Jeff joins us here on the Timber Talk podcast. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I was really interested by by a couple of the things that you wrote, and uh, because a lot of the questions I've been getting about is is, is about Luis Encarnacion, and, and you recently wrote about him uh, because for a guy who got a million dollars, his season has been quite scary. I think for the Phillies, there's not much right now positive to go on. What did you see when you saw Luis Encarnacion? You know, it's tough to evaluate these guys sometimes. You're talking about a guy that signed at 16 for a million dollars. Very possible they agreed to that deal up to a year in advance. They're not supposed to do that, but it happens all the time in the Dominican. And teams will teams make that commitment. They have to take it very seriously, even if the player changes in the intervening year, which for a baseball player, a young kid, going from 15 to 16 can happen. He was signed as a third baseman. I think everyone down there knew he was going to move to first, and he's 18 now and has a first-base DH body. You get flashes. Um, I'm sure at 5 o'clock you understand exactly why he got a million dollars. The raw power's there. You know, in my luck, I saw him absolutely tomahawk a ball in the warning track. That's a big park. But there's a lot of moving parts in the swing. He has a big leg pick that stays up in the air in the middle of the pitcher's windup as a timing mechanism, and that's tough to make work long-term. He's seeing more Barnswood College experience this year, and they're able to exploit that with pen-league-level off-speed stuff. Now, he's very young for the level. Uh, could he develop 
further with more stateside experience, yes. But it's always going to be a tough profile for a you know eighteen year old first baseman. I'm glad that you mentioned about the breaking balls and and you know the the New York Penn League level breaking balls are are giving him a lot of trouble right now. When you saw him, was it was it a matter more of the recognition? of the breaking balls and, and not just not being able to hit it? Was it more about the recognition? His pitch recognition wasn't great. Um, that's not my primary concern. And you can improve that to a certain extent, although there's a ceiling for that kind of thing. You know, Your reaction time, your hand-eye is what it is for the most part. I think it's just a mechanical issue. Um, it's being able to be able to see it, time it, get the foot down and keep the hands back. And that's a lot of things he has to do in a very short period of time. And he just hasn't seen even this quality breaking ball before. It's just, you don't see it in the Dominican, you know, in the 16 year old instructional league he was probably in. Mm -hmm. It's just guys throw in 90, 95 as hard as they can, you know, maybe with some sort of command, but probably not. And, you know, if you throw a bell high fastball, he can time it and he can hit it a long way. The, you, you mentioned the power there and the, and the 5 o'clock power, which is, is kind of something we see with Luis. Does that at least give you something to be hopeful for, or are we just kind of grabbing at strings right now? Uh, you know, you want to see him be able to translate it into games, or at least be a swing where he can translate it into games at some point. Um, does he have more raw power than Juan Luis? Probably. Um <laughs> Does that matter three years from now? Probably not. Um, you know, you see, I see guys with 70 raw all the time in batting practice, up and down the minors. It's, it's, can you bring it into games? Now, Encarnacion is very young. Um, he's a guy the staff and the play development system can work with and try to mold a little bit over the coming years, but it's it's just not a swing I see as of right now being able to tap into that raw power. Interesting that you bring up Juan Luis because he was a guy I know you you tweeted about and you wrote about uh, a little bit. When you were there, you saw him hit a solo home run, I believe it was, to to right field that just jumped off his bat. And Juan Luis is not a guy that when you watch in batting practice or even just walk around the field, you're thinking is going to hit for that kind of power. Uh, how surprised were you by, by what he showed on, on, on that swing? To put it into context a little bit, when I'm sitting on a low minor series, and I sit on a lot of low minor series, you have to understand that these guys are not close to finished products yet. Um, they're, you know, the vast majority of them can't legally drink. A lot of them are playing <laughs> professional baseball for a season or two. What I'm looking for is stuff that stands out, stuff that does not look out of place at higher levels or even in the majors. And that swing is a good example of it. It's just everything clicks. It's a, it's a nice rotational swing. He's very lean. It's a body you can dream on. I think he has skinnier legs than I do, which is saying something. <laughs> and you just have that moment where it's like, you just get like, it's like, I, I think I phrased it as, it's like one of those wait that I park over there moments. That's how far the home run went. It's like, okay, you know, as an evaluator, I can work with this. And like, he runs really well. I think he'll be a good defensive corner outfielder. There's other stuff to like there. Again, like Encarnacion, he's very raw. He has issues with off-speed. That's kind of the table stakes at this level for anybody that's not 
a really, really good prospect, like a guy can definitely throw a, a future major league grade on. I can't do that for Juan Luis. I don't think he's top 10 in the Philly system. He might not even be top 20. It's a very deep system. But it's a guy that you can like, all right, you put a little big, bright yellow highlighter note in your notebook that this is the guy to follow. I, you did kind of a, I don't want to want to say compare and contrast, uh, but when you wrote up about him, you, you also talked about Jose Pujols. Uh, I think you were talking more about the body types uh, in, in why you, you did like Juan Luis and what you saw from him and, and why you don't like what you see from, from Jose Pujols. You look at Juan Luis and you think there's room to fill out there, hopefully, because uh, he's about as skinny a guy as I've ever seen come through Williamsport. So you have to look at him, I'm guessing, and just think there's a ton of projection left with him. Is that correct? Sure. I mean, Pujols has a, has a body you can dream on to a certain extent, too. But it's sort of like, yeah, I think he's about nine months older than Luis. Maybe it's a full year. But it's like you could see Luis sort of filling out to that in a year. Maybe Pujols fills out a little bit further. For me, it's, it, this is not a good traditional scouting comp in any way, shape, or form because one's left-handed and one's right-handed. You're not really supposed to do that. But... It's just it's a matter of I think the point I was trying to make with that article was sort of you've got to make these decisions and it, sometimes it can kind of be a little bit arbitrary because I saw Pujols hit a home run in Lakewood again another sort of cavernous ballpark that I think as far a home run as I've seen hit there so and he's if you look at just strictly on performance he's in full season ball which is one level higher than Williamsport but it's a bigger jump than that statement implies and he's the performance is a little bit better. Now, it's not great. Um, does that matter two years from now when they're both in double A or thereabouts? I don't really think so. But just sometimes the guy grabs you and Luis did in Pujols did it. We're being joined by Jeff Paternostro of Baseball Perspective to talk, Baseball pers- Prospectus, excuse me, to talk about some crosscutters prospects. The individual tools with Juan Luis are all enticing, I think, a little bit. But when you put them all together, is it a, a you know, a, a person, a player that you would see moving through this system and, and becoming a productive player? Again, it's and you said it. The tools are all there. He can run. He can throw. You saw flashes of the power. He's already got pretty good feel for playing the outfield, which is not always something you see at that age and that level of experience. Now he's not that young for the level. Like I, I know we say, I think he's, I think he's still twenty. We make make that out as like young across the board, which it is. But in short season, you know that's I think sort of standard, acceptable prospect level age. So you're not going to really give him a bonus for his performance relative to his age, like Mike with someone like Archimedes Gamboa. But it's a it's a lottery ticket, and that's okay. It's like. When I say I really like Juan Luis, you know, he's probably, if stuff goes well for him, a bench outfielder, maybe a guy that can start for a second division team. But you have to keep in mind that I may sit on a short season series and never see a guy that even has that potential. Now, that said, it could click. And if you want to talk about ceiling, yeah, and I say that he's a, a good regular Five years from now, would I be shocked? No. I also wouldn't be shocked if he hits 180 in double A and is that organized ball in five years. It's, the, the range of outcomes here is very, very wide. 
You bring up Archimedes Gamboa. Jeff, you're really good at these segues, man. You're, you're working right into my stuff here. Uh, Archimedes Gamboa is a guy, and you, you know from uh, following me on Twitter, I'm on the bandwagon for Archimedes Gamboa. I think he's got the chance to be a really good player, despite what his numbers might say as an 18-year-old in short-season ball. Is he a player who, at this point of his career, kind of passes the eye test for you, Jeff? Yeah, it gets back to the show me something that doesn't look out of place on a major league field. Now he'll have, he'll make absolutely terrible plays in the field. I saw him get five hold on a routine six four three. He can be a little flaky on the bases sometimes, but he made one play. I think was a deep backhand play in the hole, sort of plant and throw. And it was just it was just. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't, you know, Francisco Lindor, even sort of like J.P. Crawford at his best. But it was just like, that's a major league play. You know, he had a he turned on a double down. He turned on a fastball, double down the line, was the second base and eight flat. I'm like, okay, I can, I can start to see it. And, you know, it's easy to sit on a guy that's hitting 300 at that level and be like, all right, I, you know, I get it. I see a, I see a prospect here. You know, I think he was hitting 140 when I was there. And he didn't play that great for my three-game set. But you got to be able to see those guys. Like, he's 18. And, again, like some of the guys have been talking about, Luis and Encarnacion, he doesn't have that much baseball, like real organized baseball experience. And I know, I know he's been hitting better since I left. Uh, he's making adjustments to the level, which you'd expect, and more reps. Um, the guy I really like if you want to look i think he's the best prospect on that team from what i saw and i think he's a guy that probably not this off season but maybe with a good season at lakewood next year could be a top 10 player in this system to me i think it's the the bat is going to be the biggest question for him you know i have people telling me all the you know people who, who look at stat lines and only look at stat lines he's got 16 errors this year at shortstop and i tell people all the time he gets to balls most guys don't get to and probably plays himself into some errors. Is the bat going to be the biggest question for him moving forward? Because it really feels like, you know, his, his defense is there. The defensive potential is there. Oh, yeah. Um, the shortstop love, I don't really worry about. Um, he has all the tools you'd want to see in a major league shortstop. Obviously, there needs to be refinement there. He needs uh, reps at higher game speed. There will be a, a little bit of an adjustment curve. I don't worry about the errors. I look at the physical tools. They're all there to play a solid, maybe even an above-average major league shortstop. Yeah, I don't know if he'll hit, <laughs> is what <laughs> it comes down to. It's like, he doesn't have to hit much, which is a nice thing when you have solid major league shortstop skills. But that's that's the limiting factor there. The swing's a little, especially from, I, I think I, I maybe, saw, maybe I saw one or two at-bats from the right side, but I saw mostly from the left side, uh, and it looked okay. Again, it, he hasn't seen even Division One college-level breaking stuff, which is what you see in the Penn League, and it mm-hmm. gave him some fits at times, especially change-ups. He's gonna, he always has the platoon advantage. He's going to see a lot of those, and that's going to be uh, sort of the you know the soft moving away he's going to have to deal with. But he does tend to... He has sort of... He's one of those gap-power guys that likes to think he has over-the-fence power and will swing out of his shoes at times on stuff he really shouldn't. Um, that's something that can be worked on. I think there's easier fixes for him with the bat than there are with uh, Encarnacion and Luis, just because you don't really have to get as much out of it. You know, if he's a 260 hitter that gets you some doubles and has an idea up there at the plate, you know, that's a guy that, you know, it's, it's not 
anything special about like Freddie Galvis. Yeah, but Freddie Galvis is going to play in the majors for 10 years. You, you bring up an interesting point, and I'm kind of going off book here a little bit, Jeff. Uh, you, you talk about Archimedes and, and being a switch hitter. Can At this age, at this level, can that almost be a detriment to a kid a little bit to have to worry about refining the swing from both sides of the plate? Sure. Uh, it's one of those things where it's a really good way to get noticed when you're 16, but when you're 18 and have to, or 18, 19, 20, have to put it into practice. Um, you know, you're getting essentially half as many reps from both sides. You have to learn how to pick up spin from different release points. Um, there's a lot more progress that has to be made with the bat. Um, you know, it might, you see it even in the majors, and plenty of switch hitters have platoon splits. Um, you know, similar to what you would expect from a guy that wasn't a switch hitter. Now, is that, again, it's we're projecting out a lot with the Embo, and I don't want to get too in depth with this. I didn't really see him enough from the right side to have strong opinions about this, but I do think generally, yes, it does add some developmental pitfalls and maybe even some developmental time. But when you're 18, that's one thing you have plenty of at least. Again, we're joined by Jeff Paternostro of Baseball Prospectus, uh, talking about some crosscutters players. Uh, Jeff, a guy you and I, I think we both kind of tweeted about him at the same time when you saw him was catcher Henry Lartigue. Uh, he's a college guy out of Ole Miss. Uh, I haven't talked about him much on here, but he seems like a guy who's got a little bit of polish about his game. What was your take on, on Lartigue when you saw him? You know, it's funny. I wasn't, I'll admit I wasn't really paying attention, but I tweeted out that I was sitting on a crosscutters game and somebody asked me who was catching. And I'm like, oh, I should probably check who's catching. And it was Lartigue. And that's one of those things where it's like, all right, you know what? I think it was probably, it might have been the second day of my trip. I'm like, I've got pretty good notes on a lot of the other bats right now. Let me watch Lartigue for a few innings. So I did. And you're right. He's got a, he's a polished college catcher. Um, he receives well. He moves well. The arm's good. You know, it's solid average. He popped, I think. Over the two games, I saw him somewhere between 1.9 and, and 2.05 for me, and it's a very accurate arm, so that's fine. It's a profile tonight. And he has a little bit bad. Again, you sort of have the opposite problem with, with Lartigue you'll have with guys like Gamboa because you expect college hitters to have really no problem with penalty pitching. I think he went to, he's an LSU guy, is that right? Ole Miss, yeah. Ole Miss, yeah, so SEC. It's SEC baseball, which he's seen better pitchers in the SEC on Friday and Saturday night than he's seeing in the Penn League most nights. Um, I know I just sat on Brooklyn recently, and uh, Peter Alonzo, their second-round pick this year out of Florida, has the same issue. It's just he's not seeing stuff as good as he saw at Florida <laughs> for the most part. You, know, you wonder, you know, like Teague's a little bit, but I think it was like a slot eighth-round guy, so that, that's the kind of guy you send to the Penn League where maybe you send a higher draft pick if you're not the Mets to Sally or even the Florida State League, a lot of these guys can handle it. Um, so he's just a fun one. Like I don't, I don't want. Maybe he's an or guy. You always need catchers. But the funny thing about catchers is the developmental path for them is weird. And if you're a good defender and you're a catch and throw guy like Martigue is, you can kind of just end up being a backup catcher for five or six years while you're cheap. And it just sort of happens. And you're never really a prospect. You maybe don't even make team top twenty lists, but you just sort of, you know, you. That's the thing is organizations always need catchers. Um, and Lartigue's the kind of guy I think that will uh, will thrive in 
the Phillies organization. I wonder a lot about college catchers who come out and just uh, their ability to call a game, because I'm sure as you watch some college baseball, that is really taken out of the players' hands anymore as coaches and managers really micromanage the game at the college level. As you watch a guy, can you judge how he calls a game, uh, especially when he's just learning how to call a game? It's tough, especially at this level, because a lot of your pitchers are limited by what they can actually do in terms of sequencing. Like, if you've got a guy that can actually spot his curve for a strike at the Penn League level, you've got a pretty good pitching prospect. Um, like, even the guys with, with decent arms, like live arms, a lot of times it's, you know, fastball to get ahead, another fastball maybe a little higher, you try to get them to uh, pop it up or something like that or foul it off, and then you throw your crude slider glove side off or bury a curve to try to get them to chase. Um, you know, beyond that, you're not really doing too much advanced sequencing. Um, you know, you know, one, one, if you're, if you have confidence in that pitcher to be able to get an off speed for the strike three, two, you know, it, it, I think it's more prescriptive, um, the catcher just because of the quality of pitching he's working with. And, mm-hmm. you know, those pitchers are going out there a lot of times with organizational directives that say, all right, we need to throw your change up 20 times this game. And you got to work that in somehow because we want you to work on your change up. So the catcher's got to, got to work with that. So I don't really worry about that kind of stuff until it gets to double A. And a lot of times this stuff is getting more and more planned out, even calls from the bench at higher levels. So it, it does make it difficult and it can be difficult to, you know, further difficult to sort of suss it out. Like, is the catcher just not calling a game well, or is it just what the pitcher can throw in these counts? Uh, the the last guy I want to ask you about here, Jeff, is, uh, and, and, and I'm going to go back to, to two separate tweets that you sent out about Bailey Falter. Uh, because even though he had a rough outing here uh, last night on Wednesday night, uh, when you saw him, you described him as, quote, a little interesting. Uh, that night he was sitting about 87 to 90, I think, uh, is what you had on your gun. Um, but his previous start here in Williamsport, somebody else had him 89 to 92 and touching 93. And you said he's going to end up underrated among the plethora of Phillies prospects. He's a nice combo of projection and polish. Does the two to three miles an hour difference between those two starts make that big a difference for a guy like Bailey Falter? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I would not be shocked if he shows up in Lakewood next year, you know, sitting more consistently in the low 90s. He still fights his mechanics a little bit at times. He's got, he'll get a little, he'll close off, have a little bit of a lefty crossfire from time to time. Um, I think they get him driving a little more forward. He'll get and tap into that low 90s. It's in there. And the, 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 the mechanics are very easy. There's not a lot of uh, effort in them. So they could even ramp that up a little bit. You know, if he ends up a reliever long term, which is certainly possible, then I think they could ramp up some effort in the mechanics and get him a little more velocity that way. But it's a nice little profile. Um, I know Philly fans uh, like Thomas Eshelman a lot. I don't know that there's a huge difference between them in terms of like ultimate future projection. Obviously, Eshelman's further along in the development career. He's a little more polished guy. But I think sort of the gap between them on offseason lists, they're probably going to overstate the difference between them as prospects. Um, and I also just like predictable lefties. That's kind of a bias of mine <laughs> anyway. Um, and you know, the, the curve and the change weren't bad for the level, especially considering that he was a, a prep pick and not a high-round prep pick. Um, again, he's a guy that you sneak onto probably the back end of a top 20 if you're me 
Um, you know, maybe he's a guy I write up at prospectus this offseason when I do the Phillies list. It's like an interesting guy or a prospect on the rise, that kind of thing. He's a guy I want to write about because, as I tweeted, he's a little interesting. I kind of separated some of the cross-cutter starters, and I only I know you only saw a couple of them, and you, your view of, of Adonis Medina got cut a little short because he got hit by a comeback. Well, fastball, thanks. <laughs> I'm sure you're not bitter about that at all. So um, yeah. I, I separated the starters into kind of two different groups this year. You know, when Sir Anthony Dominguez was here, when, you know, Adonis Medina being here, those are kind of stuff guys, whereas guys like Ranger Suarez and Bailey Falter – are, are more projection guys, you know, maybe better pitchability now, but have more projection. Is, is that kind of fair with, especially with Bailey Falter that he's got some pitchability now, but you can kind of dream on more for him later. Oh, definitely. And that's a good thing. Um, a lot of times you'll see pitchability guys that just kill this level. Um, they're usually like sixth round college juniors or something that that 88 to 92 and can spin a breaking ball but there's just not they're physically maxed out or there's not much else there but they'll absolutely kill this level um falter is going to be a little raw the numbers probably aren't going to be as good but the projections the thing and it's again it's you're looking for things that don't look out of place at higher levels and he has enough feel and he has enough stuff where it's not really, he's not overly reliant on one or the other. And really, if either takes like a, a grade jump in the coming years, all of a sudden you have a guy that could fit in at the back end of a rotation, which is something that's like, oh, it's another back end starter. You know, you always need back end starters, and most systems don't have a ton of guys that can project as number fours. Yeah, I, I think those guys kind of get a. Uh, a bad rap, you know, when you talk about a, you know, a number four or number five starter. But I think for Phillies fans, you don't need to look any further than a guy like Jared Eikhoff, who is probably going to be no more better than a, a four, maybe a three on on a lesser team. But that guy's a, a pretty valuable piece, and 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 I think you know you can go out and maybe buy an arm, uh, an ace if you if you need one at some point. But those guys are, are valuable guys that you can just plug in for two hundred innings. Yeah, that's the thing, and that's always the test for really every pitching prospect, but especially someone like Falter, who's a little long and lean, is what it comes down to is can you throw 200 innings? Because you don't really get an opportunity. Like, he'll throw 60 this year in Williamsport, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe closer to 80. Plus, you know, you can tack on whatever. If you're an extended, you'll ramp him up to 110 or maybe 120 in Lakewood next year. You know, one. 50 by the time he's in the high minors. But to get that guy that can give you 200 innings, and I think I, to use another example, probably underrated Zach Eflin a little bit coming mm-hmm. into the season um, because he's kind of guy that like, it's not great stuff. I don't know how living with his fastball in the zone as much as he does is going to work. And he's got a little more velocity this year that I didn't necessarily see coming. But if you can give him 200 innings from a number four, especially where the Phillies are on the, on the curve right now, and you You'd hope by the time Bailey Falter's ready, they're in a competition cycle because otherwise that's going to be a lot of bad baseball for Phillies fans to watch in the intervening four years. <laughs> but like, you need a guy like Zach Eflin um, and Jerry Eikhoff, I think, is a little bit better than that. Uh, I think uh, Dick Thompson, who probably sounds like he's going to be up in a week or so, is a little bit better than that. But if you look at what they were rolling out there last year in the sort of the three-four-five slot, you know, Jerome Williams and David Buchanan, it's just it's it's bad for 
your team's development. It's bad for your bullpen's development. Um, you know, having a guy that you know to just take the ball every fifth day, even if he's moving between starting and relieving or triple A and, and the majors, you know, you're the sixth starter type. You know, if your sixth starter is a number four or a number five, that's great. You know, get as many of those guys as you can. You know, is Zach Eflin the fifth best starter on the next Phillies playoff team? I don't know, but I definitely want Zach Eflin in my system when I'm ready to compete. Jeff, we really appreciate you joining us here on the Timber Talk podcast this week. We don't get a lot of guys coming in that, that see the crosscutters and, and can talk about the crosscutters. So we really appreciate you joining the podcast. Uh, why don't you give the listeners an idea of where they can follow you on Twitter and where they can read your work? So I'm a senior prospect writer, baseball prospectus. I write a column or something akin to that every week or so. You know, you can pop in, see my stuff in Monday morning, 10 packs, notes from the field. I just wrote a bunch of transaction analysis stuff at a crazy uh, deadline day. Um, I also write about Mets stuff, which is probably of less interest to your readers at the Mets local site. And I host a podcast called For All You Kids Out There. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. Jeff, we thank you once again for joining the podcast, and uh, hopefully we get the chance to uh, see you in Williamsport again. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jeff. Earlier, Jeff Paternostro said he thought Archimedes Gamboa was the top prospect on this year's Williamsport Crosscutters team. While I'd put Adonis Medina ahead of him, the gap for me is definitely closing. Unfortunately, it may be a while until we see Gamboa in the lineup again. The 18-year-old shortstop from Venezuela was injured earlier this week when he tried to steal a base at Mahoning Valley and pulled up about 10 feet short of the base with an apparent leg injury. Nobody on the Crosscutters has said what that injury is right now, but not only has Gamboa not appeared in a game since that day, but he hasn't participated in any of the Cutters' workouts. Manager Pat Border said Wednesday night he has no idea on a timetable for Gamboa's return. What this injury does, though, is open up an opportunity for undrafted free agent Chandler Hall to start each day at shortstop. Hall joined Evan Rogers to help fill in at third base for Luke Williams while Williams recovered from his injury last month. He's also seen some time at second base to give Luis Espiritu a day off here and there. But Hall is most comfortable playing shortstop, and it shows. I spoke with Chandler Hall following Wednesday's game against Staten Island when he hit the first home run of his professional career about how important this opportunity is for him. And while he stressed he hates seeing Gamboa injured, He's hoping to grab hold of this opportunity with both hands. So here's part of my interview with Chandler Hall as he discusses the chance to play every day and how his first home run will hopefully help him relax at the plate. Seems like you're in a position with Cammy going down to maybe get a, a few more starts in short. Is this kind of a good way to get it going? Yeah, I mean, I, I never wish that upon anybody like Cammy to get hurt, but uh, I mean, somebody's got to step up, so it's nice that it's me. I get the, the opportunity to do so, and yeah, I mean... I think it was good to get that first one out of the way, like I said. So. You've been trying to work at second, trying to work at third. Yeah. Does short just feel more comfortable for it you? It does. It feels like home, honestly, on the, on the uh, diamond. So, I mean, I've played my whole life, so it's just home to me. How does that translate into your hitting then? Does it allow you to be maybe more relaxed and focused on your hitting? Yeah, definitely. I think it allows for more confidence because uh, when you're confident in all aspects of the game, you're going to do well. And, I think it's translated to my hitting as well because I don't know if you knew before, but I was in a slump, so it was kind of it was kind of tough to get out of that. Uh, but getting back to short and getting kind of back home, like I said, it, it was nice. Does, does it relax you at the plate when you get into one like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's uh, it just kind of takes that load off your shoulders. 
Uh, have they given you an idea how long Gamby might be out or that might be? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I asked him today how he felt, and he said he still felt kind of sore. So, I mean, I hope he gets back. Gamby's a good dude. I, I want him to play and all that, but uh, I think he said it, it was still hurting him today. At the same time, do you look at it as an opportunity for yourself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. you got to take advantage of your opportunities. You know, like I said before, I don't wish that upon anybody, but yeah, it's definitely an opportunity for me, so I'm, I'm excited for it. Chandler Hall isn't your typical undrafted free agent signing. He went undrafted after his junior season this spring at Louisiana Tech, but decided to forego his final season when his head coach, Jeff Goff, left Louisiana Tech to take the head coaching job at Alabama. This isn't just a kid expected to be some organizational filler. I think he's expected to produce a little bit for the crosscutters. Hall has struggled at the plate, hitting just 208 through 48 at bats, and he has a 25% strikeout rate with the Williamsport crosscutters. It's easy to dismiss Chandler Hall as a prospect because of those early numbers, but it's important, I think, to take into account that he's been trying to learn a pair of new positions while adjusting to professional pitching. We see this year after year as players come in here to Williamsport uh, and, and try to make that transition to different positions. We see it in the GCL as well. And a lot of times what is happening defensively can also affect these players offensively as well. Chandler Hall had played some second base as a freshman at Louisiana Tech, but third base was completely foreign to him before playing it here in Williamsport. He said himself he's hoping the opportunity to play a position he's most comfortable with at shortstop will help him settle down a little bit at the plate. It's a ridiculously small sample size, but in his two starts at shortstop since Archimedes Gamboa's injury, Hall has gone two for seven with that home run on Wednesday night. He's a player worth watching because he can run a little bit. He stole 21 bases at Louisiana Tech this year. He's got a little pop in his bat which you saw Wednesday night, plus he hit seven home runs in college this spring. And truth be told, he's the only player on this roster right now who could handle the defensive rigors of playing shortstop on a daily basis. Once again, I want to thank Jeff Paternostro of Baseball Prospectus for joining us here on the Timber Talk podcast. Be sure to read all his weekly write-ups at BaseballProspectus.com and follow him on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. As always, you can follow me, Mitch Rupert, on Twitter at Mitch underscore Rupert, M-I-T-C-H underscore R-U-P-E-R-T. And should you have any questions about the Cutters or Phillies prospects in general, feel free to send them my way and we'll answer them here on a future podcast. You can download the podcast now on iTunes as well as listening on SoundCloud. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast on both those channels rate them and leave your comments on what you think we can be doing better or what you would like to hear us talk about here on the timber talk podcast you can always read my stories about the williamsport crosscutters at www.sungazette.com just scroll to the bottom of the front page and look for my picture and a link to my blog called beyond the boundaries thanks again for tuning in everybody we'll talk to you next week right here on the timber talk podcast